Hello and a warm welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. This is your host Evgenia Kutsuki, editor at EMG Health, and today I'm delighted to be joined by the accomplished Director General for the International Vaccine Institute, Dr. Jerome Kim. Dr. Kim is an international expert on the development and evaluation of vaccines and is the Director General of the International Vaccine Institute, known as IVI. Based in Seoul, South Korea, IVI's mission is to discover, develop and deliver safe, effective and affordable vaccines for global health. Prior to IVI, Dr. Kim was the Principal Deputy for the US military's HIV research program and Chief of the Laboratory of Molecular Virology and Pathogenesis. He led the military's phase 3 HIV vaccine trial that showed efficacy in the prevention of HIV-1. Dr. Kim is also an adjunct professor at the Department of Medicine for the Uniformed Services University and at the Graduate School of Public Health within Yonsei University. He has authored over 300 publications and is a graduate of the University of Hawaii, attaining a high honours in history and highest honours in biology. He received his MD from Yale University's School of Medicine. Jerome, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's very nice to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so to start with the first question, you specialized in infectious diseases early on in your career. This was, in fact, a big part of your time studying at the Duke University Medical Center in North Carolina. What was it about that area of research and medicine that drew you in? An interesting question. I, I actually did my thesis research uh, in medical school on immune responses to uh, the germ that causes uh, pneumonia, pneumococcal pneumonia. And uh, at, at around the same time, HIV was, was becoming known as a problem. And I remember my third year in medical school, we had some of the first patients with AIDS uh, at Yale New Haven Medical Center. And, and so the combination of infection and immune responses and, and AIDS, uh, you know, infectious diseases seemed like a natural for me. And, uh, and it actually was really opportune because uh, at the same time, the U.S. military was launching its HIV research program. And so as I transitioned from Duke to uh, the U.S. Army, uh, or actually to the U.S. military, um, the HIV research program picked me up and I got to work with uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, who eventually became the Global AIDS Coordinator and then the White House lead on COVID, and then Dr. Robert Redfield who was the CDC director during the Trump administration. So, um, you know, my military bosses uh, eventually moved on to, to global health as well. Um, so it was a good training in, in, in vaccine research, infectious diseases, and public health. And during the development of the various COVID vaccines, collaboration between pharmaceutical companies has been unlike any we've seen before. What possibilities could that kind of continued partnership and collaboration unveil for the future of healthcare? Well, those of us who do uh, public health and global health really hope that this was one of the silver linings from COVID. And, and there'll, there'll be a couple others that we'll probably end up discussing. But, you know, the idea that uh, companies would, A, collaborate together um, and would make vaccines together is really an important thing for, uh, for vaccines for global health. You know, we have 
Pfizer, uh, which is a major vaccine company, uh, working with a small biotech company from Germany um, to, to make the RNA vaccines. And then we have Sanofi, a major French vaccine company, making the Pfizer vaccine, as well as developing its own vaccine. So this kind of unprecedented collaboration has been one of the reasons that we've been able to administer so far three and a half billion doses of COVID vaccine. You know, in, a, in any given year, we make 400 million to 500 million doses of influenza vaccine, 24 or so companies. With COVID, we've made three and a half billion doses so far, and, and the number's going up. So that's only possible through the kinds of collaboration, either contract manufacturing or licensing agreements between major companies. And so hopefully as we move now from COVID into um, just the, the routine global health vaccination, we'll see a lot more collaboration between companies. Yeah, uh, and you mentioned silver linings of the COVID pandemic. And uh, uh, what has been impressive, or in my mind at least, is the speed at which everything has been developed. And uh, surely that collaboration has contributed to that, that joint effort from companies. Uh, is that a part of the reason why it was, uh, vaccines were developed so speedily? What other factors do you think contributed in that? Oh, that's a great question. And, and we still have to write the book on this. It's still, you know, the story is ongoing. But one of the first things is that, you know, um, an organization known as the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, uh, was formed in the aftermath of the Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 2015 in West Africa. And what CEPI did was it, it was the, the world realized that we couldn't wait for the epidemic to start developing the vaccine, that we needed to work on vaccine development before the pandemics hit, because usually uh, it, it took a while to get going. And by the time we started working on the vaccine and, and testing it in animals, the epidemic would disappear. And the companies would be very upset because they would start, you know, dropped everything, started working on a vaccine, and all of a sudden the money dried up and no one was interested in the vaccine. And that's not how you get vaccine companies to work on things. So CEPI was set up with funding from lots of different sources, the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the European Union, Japan, India, Germany, France. They put together billions of dollars to work on vaccines for outbreaks. But at the same time, they, they, they developed a series or, or network of networks that could develop vaccines quickly because CEPI was really worried about something they hypothetically called disease X. And well, substitute COVID-19 for X. And you, you have an organization that was set up to work on outbreak diseases and an, un, you know, an hitherto undescribed virus, COVID-19, in January of, of 2020. And CEPI immediately sprung into action and offered four grants to you know, companies, uh, several of which actually um, have vaccines now that are approved. So within three weeks of, of the sequence of COVID-19 being published, CEPI was willing to put money on the table to develop vaccines against COVID-19. At the same time, you know, the US government put $20 billion into Operation Warp Seed, and that's the kind of funding it takes to innovate quickly. So CEPI was very important. The ability of companies to collaborate to make billions of doses of vaccine under licensing agreements and contract manufacturing, critically important. The willingness of regulatory agencies to accelerate procedures that normally take months into what we call concurrent reviews so that they're looking at things as they develop, again, really critical in order to get things moving quickly. And then finally, institutional review boards, uh, investigators, uh, and 
you know, hundreds of thousands of volunteers were all willing to step up to help evaluate these vaccines uh, in, in what we now know as record speed for a new pathogen and, and get vaccines uh, to the point of being able to show safety and efficacy um, you know, within 10 to 11 months. Again, just remarkable. It's really a tribute to one of the other kind of stars, I think, um, of the COVID pandemic, which are the biotech companies. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, Pfizer is partnered with BioNTech, which had the mRNA technology. So it's, um, it's RNA technology from uh, BioNTech. Moderna, biotech company, never made a vaccine. Novavax, biotech company, doesn't have a licensed vaccine. Oxford, which is a university, partnered with the Jenner Institute and their own little biotech called uh, Novavax, uh, sorry, uh, Vaxitech, partnered with AstraZeneca, which is not even a vaccine company, it's a pharmaceutical company. Again, you know, these are not the major vaccine companies. Merck, not in the game. GSK, they're offering their adjuvant. Sanofi tried and has restarted and is now in phase three. It's a year and a half into the pandemic. So the real heroes here are the small companies. And, and that's been really remarkable. And hopefully that kind of innovation and partnership with the big companies will drive responses uh, for global health and, and potentially for the next pandemic. So all of these things. And then finally, you know, 3.5 billion doses. We've never done that before. We've got vaccine out to um, 100, actually over 100 countries now, high, middle, and low income. Not enough vaccine has gone to low-income countries, but we've never been able to introduce a vaccine and have this kind of uptake in the first year that the vaccine is available. Rotavirus vaccine, really great vaccine. Introduced in the United States in 2006, approved by WHO in 2009, recommended by WHO in the same year. In 2021, 60% of the world's children, just the children, not the adults, just the children, 60% have not received a single dose of rotavirus vaccine. That's the usual standard for vaccines. We've got COVID vaccines out in countries all over the world. We need to get it out faster and we need to cover low-income countries, but COVAX, this mechanism that was set up to do that, hopefully will survive COVID-19 and become a new mechanism to distribute vaccines equitably uh, in the future. Thank you. That's really interesting and really encouraging as well. Um, uh, so moving on to the next question, as you've spoken about previously, one of the biggest challenges we're facing in public health currently is vaccine hesitancy and refusal. What can the pharma industry do to effectively address and resolve this challenge? So, you know, the, the pharma industry um, should do what it does best. Discover and develop vaccines. They need to partner with countries uh, and organizations that will distribute th those vaccines, that will talk about them, that will explain the vaccines um, to parents and will explain why they're important and then speak very honestly about potential side effects, but also uh, about the significant benefits of vaccination, not only for individual children or uh, individual people, but also for, for communities. More than that, we have to get governments involved. And, and those governments that have been very effective and not uh, divided by politics have been much more effective in getting uh, rolling out vaccine uh, to, to their populations than governments that have been internally conflicted by uh, political divisions. Because those political divisions uh, fan 
the fires of, of the vaccine hesitancy movements around the world. They create issues where no issues exist. They um, potentiate and sometimes propagate misinformation about vaccines. And so these things, because of the nature of, of, um, of the internet and, and of um, electronic access to media these days, those things have a lot more, a lot wider distribution than they did in the past. So we have to be very careful. We have to lead with science. We have to encourage people to take vaccines. We have to get them to want to get the vaccine. And, and finally, you know, we have to remove barriers to receiving the vaccine. And, and governments need to participate at every level in this. Companies, on the other hand, need to make the vaccines available, need to be straightforward about the data, need to talk honestly about side effects. And, and really, we as in general, not only the vaccine companies, doctors and nurses, governments need to be better at talking about vaccines as a, as a global public good and speaking honestly about the benefits that, that will apply once vaccines are properly used. Thank you. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned removing barriers. What do you see as the biggest barrier in um, ac accessing uh, vaccines and in convincing the public? So it depends on the country, right? And, and it depends on the timing. In the beginning, um, you know, the rollout in the United States um, while relatively successful, uh, met with a number of significant roadblocks. You know, people were trying to sign up. The systems for signing up uh, weren't um, weren't working efficiently. And and this is an example from the country I live in right now, um, the Republic of Korea. South Korea has one of the most sophisticated, you know, internet systems. They have, I think, the fastest um, band, the the most bandwidth, the fastest internet. They announced that they were vaccinating 50 to 55 year olds and so many people logged on, the system crashed. A system designed to handle, you know, 300,000 um, uh, requests all of a sudden had to handle millions and the system crashed. And, you know, those are the kinds of things when we talk about making access easier in, in high income countries, it's things like being able to sign up, um, knowing where you can go to get things working with people who don't have access to the internet, like the elderly. Um, you know, uh, one of the great names in vaccines, Stanley Plotkin, actually wrote a letter to the New York Times where he was saying, you know, I'm pretty good with computers. I'm, you know, an expert in vaccines. I can, I'm a consultant to the Operation Warp Speed. I cannot find where in the New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey area I can possibly be vaccinated. And that's what we mean by making it easy. Um, from from a developing country perspective, from low and middle income country perspective, the, the access to vaccine question is a lot more basic. It's actually being able to get vaccine to locations, to people who want to be vaccinated. So can, could we get more than, you know, 15% of people in uh, low and middle income countries vaccinated? Could we get more than 1% of people in low income countries vaccinated? It's, it's a question of actually being able to get the vaccine from wherever they're being made to um, to the health centers and to the nurses and, and healthcare providers that are distributing vaccine in those countries. I mean, so again, it depends on where you are and what time you are in the pandemic, but we still are in a situation where 75% of the world's population has not been vaccinated. Thank you for this. So quite often it is actually practical barriers that need to be overcome. 
So the feature article of our latest issue of Gold magazine is titled Preparing for the Next Pandemic. And it's a very hot topic at the moment. And previously, when you've spoken about preparing for the next pandemic, you've mentioned that we need to achieve a faster approval process for vaccines. And this is something that you also touched on in uh, one of the previous questions. Uh, What needs to be done to ensure this can be accomplished? So specifically, uh, vaccine approval. Um, it's a complicated topic. There was already concern expressed um, by many people, uh, reasonable people, that you know we were rushing through uh, vaccine testing and approval. And in fact, when you actually look at it, the length of the clinical trials and the way we did it um, really did ensure that the data that were necessary to prove efficacy, at least over the short term, and, and demonstrate safety uh, were adequately collected. We had in place the safety mechanisms to collect information after vaccination so that we could pick up events that were occurring at a one to 100,000 to one in 500,000. So what we would call very rare events uh, were picked up like the blood clot issue with AstraZeneca or the rare blood clot issue with the Janssen vaccine or um, pericardial inflammation or myocardial inflammation with uh, some of the RNA vaccines. So those things are working, but there was a, there was a concern that we were forcing the system to work so fast that, that, that regulators were going to miss things. So we have to balance um, speed and, um, and completeness of the regulatory evaluation. And so what does that mean? And, and how does that practically impact the next pandemic? So by definition, pandemics are, uh, create a sense of urgency and, an, and, a, and a need for vaccines fairly quickly. And so the regulatory agencies like the FDA, like the EMA, had in place and had accommodated vaccine manufacturers in order to ensure that these vaccines would get out uh, quickly, that would, they would be reviewed quickly, that trials, clinical trials in human subjects would be allowed to start efficiently, and, and they by and large have done that. They also ensured that um, their evaluation of efficacy Uh, that is whether the vaccine protects against mild PCR positive disease um, or infection or and safety uh, occurred within a very short period of time. And then rather than give a formal marketing authorization, a general marketing authorization, they issued these uh, various levels of emergency use or emergency use listing or emergency authorizations. And and that worked for pandemic uh, setting. Whether that will be applicable to a more general setting, I don't think so. Um, although I think we have learned ways to, to work quickly uh, during the time of the pandemic. I think that the one part that I might have mentioned uh, as a potential delay was actually the time, and it actually applies more to companies that um, produce vaccine, not in what we would call a stringent regulatory uh, setting. So the stringent regulatory authorities are the, you know, the, considered the best in the world, right? They're the the world-class ones, the FDA, the EMA, the MHRA in the UK, you know, the TGA in Australia, they are considered stringent regulatory authorities. Companies that, that had vaccine manufactured in those areas um, were able to be very rapidly reviewed by um, their regulatory agency, then by the WHO, which then issued uh, emergency use list fairly quickly. The companies that had problems were were companies located in countries with what we call functional regulatory authorities. 
So functional regulatory authorities would be the regulatory authority in Korea, the Ministry of Food and Drug Safety, the one in China known as NMPA, um, the one in India known as DCGI. They are functional. They're recognized by WHO as doing a complete job, but they're not, uh, they don't meet the criteria for the most stringent regulatory authority. So what happens is the company um, portfolio, so once they collect all the information on safety and on efficacy, they have to uh, give that information to the World Health Organization, which then does another uh, full review. And often there are questions. And so that process, you know, um, Sinopharm turns its uh, dossier in in January, and it was May before it was approved. Whereas the, the companies that existed in uh, stringent regulatory authority settings uh, got their portfolios reviewed and approved much faster. So is it the company? Is it the regulatory authority? Um, you know, the Indian companies, the Chinese companies, South Korean companies all have the capacity to manufacture significant quantities of vaccine for pandemic settings at a level that meets WHO requirements. And we just need to be better at uh, integrating the timelines for their regulatory review and then final review and approval by WHO. And I think that was where a bit more efficiency could be used. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, that the system didn't work. It was just that, you know, WHO was trying to ensure that these products from non-stringent authorities uh, were going to meet the requirements necessary for WHO emergency use listing. Thank you. So is it, am I right in phrasing this as being a matter of harmonization almost in uh, regulations, a global harmonization? Would it be accurate to say that? So there, so actually the remarkable thing is that for vaccines and, and for many uh, pharmacological products, drugs, uh, there is a fair amount of harmonization. Um, in fact, the um, ICH, the guidelines are, are entirely about harmonization of uh, the review and, and uh, testing of uh, vaccines and drugs. So there is a process already in place. I think it's more an, in, it's a problem of integration. And, you know, how we transition things from the testing stage to the regulatory review stage, to the approval stage, to the implementation stage. When you look at the things that have caused us problems, you know, we are relatively efficient in vaccine development. But in terms of getting that manufactured, there were delays. And so, you know, when we think about vaccines, we think about process end to end. So if you were a company, you'd think, I'm going to get it tested. I'm going to start making it. Usually we start making it before the final approvals are done, but we're anticipating the, the approvals will be given. And then we start distributing it. And it's that level of integration that didn't always work for COVID. So, you know, we're in a situation now where people are expecting more and more vaccine, but, but when is it coming? And, you know, then once we have the vaccine, how are we going to give 16 billion doses of vaccine? And, and this is going to be an example, but um, in Korea, the birth cohort is between 300,000 and 400,000 children a year. And when you think about vaccination, most of the vaccines that are given are given to the kids, right, routinely to children. Um, now Korea has to vaccinate 51 million people. And luckily, they have a very efficient healthcare delivery system, so they can do that. But many parts of the world have systems that work for kids, for children. They aren't designed to handle the rest of the population. And that actually can be a major um, bottleneck for the final, you know, for impact, you have to vaccinate people. And giving it to people is going to be the issue. So as with everything in COVID, we have to remember 
that every step that we accomplish is going to be followed by another step and that we have to start planning for the next step before we finished the step we're on. And, and it's like that for many um, manufactured products um, and, and many systems. And, and in COVID, that became very clear. It was the transitions that hurt us. Okay, it's a very steep learning curve for authorities and healthcare. Um, but I, the good thing is that we are learning. Um, as mentioned in the introduction, IVI is devoted to developing countries. What advancements do you realistically imagine within the next five years? You know, so in a sense, IVI is like a small vaccine company. You know, we do a lot of work uh, on the ground, understanding what diseases impact uh, low and middle income countries. Once we know that, and it's often the countries don't have good numbers on this, we can talk to them about, you know, there's a significant burden of, say, typhoid fever in your country. It causes this many infections and this many hospitalizations and this many deaths. Um, then we work on a vaccine for typhoid, and we work in partnership with the Gates Foundation and with vaccine manufacturers because we don't actually manufacture vaccines. And we test the vaccine. We show that it works. We take it through the regulatory process uh, in the country, so in, for instance in Korea, or at WHO through what we call pre-qualification, which is how WHO approves vaccines. And once pre-qualification is given, then the United Nations agencies like UNICEF can purchase the vaccine. And that's how it enters the system and can be used in vaccination around the world. But that's not it. We actually have to then create the demand for it. So convince countries that it would be a, a benefit, a cost benefit to using the vaccine in, in say, um, in Madagascar or in Mozambique. And that means working with individual countries' governments, generating information about the cost effectiveness of vaccination for typhoid, uh, and then convincing a ministry of health, which is easy, and then ultimately a ministry of finance, which is not so easy, that it's a worthwhile thing to buy vaccine and vaccinate and to put it through the system and, and use it. So we have to work in, on all these different things uh, when, we're, when we're generating a vaccine for global health. Ideally, it would be great to have something like CEPI for all those other diseases. And, and what do I mean? You know, we've made enormous progress in terms of vaccinating kids. 80 to 85% of children around the world receive the basic, uh, we call it EPI vaccines, extended program of immunization vaccines. And that's a really remarkable thing. If we were to fully utilize all of the vaccines that we have currently, an additional 2.5 million children's lives would be saved every year. That's amazing, right? So the vaccines currently save 2.5 million. If we completely implemented them, another 2.5 million. But we have another group of infectious diseases that, that includes HIV, TB, malaria, group A streptococcus, non-typhoidal salmonella, shigella, all these infectious diseases for which no vaccines exist, which kill another four to five million people a year. But there is no CEPI for them. There is no way to say, you know, we need $30 million to develop a new vaccine against non-typhoidal salmonella. There are no funders. So as we look at these diseases with huge burden that kill 5 million people a year, there is no global mechanism like CEPI or, um, or support for those vaccines. And in the next five years, it would be great if we could set up an organization that would identify diseases of high burden and work with uh, organizations 
that are committed to the development of vaccines for global health, because we would consider these vaccines to be unincentivized. You know, there is an incentive to develop a COVID vaccine. We know that these vaccines are being purchased and used. Imagine a vaccine for, for which the only market that exists exists in low and middle income countries, countries that can't pay $20 a dose uh, for a vaccine, that where a dollar a dose for a vaccine is considered uh, the norm. Who's going to, what, you know, Pfizer, what GSK, what Sanofi would be willing to develop vaccines that cost a dollar a dose. And that's why we need an, an organization that will help us to develop those vaccines and develop the, the case for using them and, and then help us to get them implemented. And I think that would be a wonderful thing uh, five years from now. So do you realistically see this being um, something feasible in the next five years? Do you think uh, there will be a turning point where such an organization can be set up? So, you know, um, if you asked me this question three years ago, I would have said that would be a very uh, difficult thing. But the world has changed a bit because of COVID. I think COVID has taught us that, you know, even in our modern world, we are not immune from big shocks from infectious diseases. But it's also reminded us of the power of vaccines and vaccine development. I mean, within a year, we had a number of safe and effective vaccines that can make an impact against COVID if we can make enough of them and get them out and use them equitably. Um, so there's a lot more interest in, uh, in vaccines and vaccine development, in vaccines for global health, There's an interest now in Europe and North America in, in building regional vaccine manufacturing capability and in Latin America, for instance, or in Africa or additional capacity in South Asia or Southeast Asia in order to ensure that we aren't going to run into the situation we were in uh, initially where all the vaccines were coming from Europe and North America and were being used there first. And, you know, how was vaccine going to get to sub-Saharan Africa? or to countries in South Asia that had tremendous need because of, of COVID-19 outbreaks. So three years ago, I would have said, no, we know that CEPI works. And with an organization like that, dedicated to what we call unincentivized vaccines or poverty associated infectious diseases, um, maybe something like that would be possible. We need a champion. Thank you, That's, um, that is encouraging news. And coming up to my last question, um, one of your titles is Colonel of the United States Army Medical Corps. Why did you want to use your medical background within a military setting? Uh, okay, so so I've, I've retired from the military. Uh, before I took my position at the International Vaccine Institute, I retired um, from the U.S. Army after 20 years of, of service. But um, I think... People don't realize, but uh, medical school in the United States is very expensive. I mean, we end up paying uh, quite a bit for medical school. And one of the programs that the U.S. government has is that it, it offers to pay for your medical school and to provide you with a small stipend while you're in school to get your medical degree. If for every year they support you, you, you will do a year of service in the military, working as a military doctor. And so that's the program that put me through Yale. Uh, medical school. And then uh, they let me do my training at Duke, which is a non-military program. And then uh, they called me back to active service. And rather than have me take care of patients exclusively, they put me in a very, um, in a wonderful place, the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. And people don't know this, but Walter Reed has developed seven or eight of the currently licensed vaccines. 
Um, it's a military unit that has a very long history of vaccine development and successful vaccine development. And so as a part of the HIV uh, vaccine research program, you know, I got to work on and develop and test uh, eight vaccines against HIV. And, um, and so even though I paid back my time, I, I stayed with the program and, you know, got to run a phase three trial in collaboration with the Ministry of Public Health in Thailand that remains the only HIV vaccine trial to show protection against HIV infection. And I, that was very exciting. And then working with world-class scientists to show what uh, part of the immune response protected people against HIV infection. All those things were um, exciting and, and, and different. And, and I'm, you know, the, my time in the military HIV research program uh, was very important for my, um, my scientific development. Thank you, Jerome. It's been brilliant speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me and talk to me. And um, that's all we have time for this week. To our listeners, if you would like to hear more conversations like the brilliant one we had today, please join us again next Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, for another episode of the EMG Gold podcast. Don't forget to check out our sister magazine too at emg.com. Until then, take care and goodbye.